Welcome to the Public Morality. If you conducted a simple Wikipedia search on Roger Stone, the first sentence states, he is an American conservative political consultant, lobbyist, former InfoWars host, and convicted felon. In November 2019, subsequent to the Mueller report to Congress, Stone was convicted on several counts, including witness tampering and lying to Congress. He was sentenced to 40 months in prison. But on June 10, 2020, days before Stone was to begin his sentence, he received the pardon from President Donald Trump. Predictably, how one felt about the president's pardon fell down the fault line of support for the president. In a recent article in the Atlantic magazine entitled, The Traditional Interpretation of the Pardon Power is Wrong, political science professors Jeffrey Tulis and Corey Breschneider argue that President Trump's actions dangerously encroach on our constitutional norms. We are once again joined by one who is no stranger to the public morality, Brown University professor and author of The Oath in the Office, A Constitutional Guide for Future Presidents, Professor Corey Breschneider. Professor Corey Breschneider, welcome once again to The Public Morality. Always a pleasure, and uh, looking forward to this. Uh, let's just begin, let's cut to the quick, as they say. Was okay. President Trump's pardon of Roger Stone, in your view, an abuse of power, unethical, illegal, none of the above, or all of the above? Explain. All of the above. <laughs> Corey Breschneider, thank you for joining me today on the public rally. No. <laughs> Explain. I got that one right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, the, uh, I mean, we'll break it down, of course, over the course of this half hour. The usual view is that it was potentially impeachable or a high crime or an abuse of power, but not invalid, not illegal, not unconstitutional, because it's often thought that the pardon power is unlimited. Now, uh, a great uh, 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 political um, scientist, um, a student of, a scholar really, of the presidency, to my mind, probably one of the best living scholars of the presidency who you've had on your program, uh, Jeffrey Toulis and I, uh, have a new article in the Atlantic Monthly, and I hope people will read this in, in com companion with our discussion. Uh, and we, what we argue, we think pretty meticulously, given that we only had 2,000 words to do it, is that the traditional view that the pardon power is unlimited is actually wrong. And when you look at the Constitution's text, when you look at its history, when you look at its values, and you look at the structure of the presidency, the way it's created, it's, it's clear to us that this pardon is unconstitutional. Um, so we'll work, I think we can walk through all of those. Maybe listeners would be interested in all of them. But um, what we're saying basically is that when the when the Constitution says that the pardon the president has the power to pardon, comma, except in cases of impeachment, that that doesn't just refer to the inability of the president to stop or undo an impeachment. That's the traditional view. It also makes invalid pardons related to the uh, cases. Uh, uh, that have arisen in the, in the when the president himself or herself has been impeached. And uh, here's the long and the short of it. It's common sense that you can't use the pardon power to protect yourself from an impeachment, to undo uh, the investigation of an impeachment, to save your co-conspirator. The framers imagined a president doing this, and they provided us, thankfully, with a way of stopping it. Now, now some might... Uh push back on you on, on that piece and, and, and say, well, 
if you look at uh, Roger Stone was indicted for uh, witness tampering and lying to members of Congress regarding the the Mueller probe, the Mueller investigation, and Donald Trump was uh, impeached for matters regarding Ukraine. And since right. they were not related, in fact, Ukraine didn't happen until after the Mueller uh, probe was had right. concluded. So how is that uh, uh, not covered by um, the the the, the uh, pardon? So the, the I'm guess I'm saying the, the impeachment yeah. wouldn't qualify. Explain that, please. Right. Um, so we begin with that and uh, we'll elaborate more as we write more about it. But the first thing that we say is that when you look at the impeachment charges, it's clearly wrong that the two are separated in that way. Certainly the inquiry started out as an inquiry into Ukraine and also an inquiry into um, tr earlier issues with um, uh, uh, Russia. Uh, and when the, you look at the impeachment charges, and I'll just read this to you, the articles of impeachment, um, that were voted up by the House of Representatives. This is what they actually say. Um, uh, let me pull it out. Sorry. Um, they talk about, quote, previous invitations of foreign interference in United States elections. And they talk about, quote, previous efforts to undermine the United States government investigation investigations into foreign interference in the United States election. So, yes, there is a focus in what we watched on television and in the articles themselves on events related to Ukraine. But the worry is that this is part of a broader pattern of trying to basically solicit uh, foreign involvement in our elections and to try to hide it. And in particular, you know, when you listen to Stone, I'll just make the best case to show you this. Uh, this is what he said um, somewhat recently in an interview. He said, um, um, we, we write, shortly before his sentence that was commuted, Stone said that Trump, and now here's the quote, knows, quote, knows I was under enormous pressure to turn on him. It would have eased my cons situation considerably, but I didn't. He's basically saying the reason why I'm getting this pardon is because early on in the, when the Congress was investigating Russia, but not just then, through impeachment, I maintain my silence. I helped the president of the United States mess with this um, impeachment inquiry. And we know, of course, that they were considering articles of impeachment directly on Russia and on the obstruction of justice in regard to Mueller. And Stone made that possible. He stymied the more specific broadening of the articles of impeachment to include Russia. So what we're saying is, what's the connection? It's connected to the investigation. It's connected to the charges. And most of all, you don't allow Stone to benefit from his own success that we didn't have more evidence about Russia. Uh, of course, it's connected to the inquiry. And that's why uh, this is related enough to a case of impeachment to be uh, disqualified on our theory. I want to go, I want to go specifically to something that you, wrote, you wrote in the piece. You, you write, uh, quote, uh, uh, the power to grant... Uh, pardons and reprieves includes the power to commute or reduce sentences after convictions. But this power is constrained by a limit, ex except in cases of impeachment. Traditionally, uh, I'm sorry, traditionally, this exception has been read to mean only that a president cannot use the pardon and reprieve power to prevent or undo an impeachment by the House or an impeachment conviction by the Senate. Uh, 
Um, that is, as you've said earlier, the traditional view. And, and now, how do you want us, or how how are you suggesting we should be viewing it going forward? So the traditional view is exactly that: that in England you couldn't stop a king couldn't stop an impeachment of one of his ministers, and uh, a king uh, or a monarch couldn't also uh, could un- basically undo a punishment that resulted, though, from a parliamentary inquiry. And some of those punishments were quite serious. Uh, So the usual view, the traditional view is we were just really taking that British uh, rule that limited the king's pardoning. Uh, Of course, you couldn't impeach the king legally, but you could impeach ministers. And we were expanding it to the American Congress. And then we added a second thing, which is that uh, accepting cases of impeachment also means that you can't undo an impeachment. So you can't get rid of a penalty like uh, the disqualification for future uh, office holding. That's what the for really since Joseph Story said that in the 1830, uh, 1830s, people have thought this meant. Now, what we do is we say, you know, Joseph Story wasn't writing during the founding. Let's really dive deep and ask why he thought this, where he came up with this view that everybody's assumed is right. The first thing that should strike us is that when we see what Joseph Story said, he didn't have access to what happened at the founding. Madison hadn't uh, released his notes until after he wrote this. And he hedges. He said, I think this is probably what happened, that we took this idea from England and the story that I just told you. So when I saw that, I thought, probably, that's not really a great (laughs) historical story. And then we started to dive deep. And when you look at the day, the notes on the day that this language was uh, adopted, August 25th, you get a pretty weird puzzle rather than anything clear. And what happened was that they started out with very clear language that would have only done what uh, the British would have done, the inability to stop an impeachment. And then they broadened out the language. They used very different language and uh, had a debate, actually, about should they go broad or narrow, four to six in terms of the delegation vote count. And so what we're saying is it's really unclear. Like, why were they rejecting? Why were they debating this specific language? How broad was this um, language that they did adopt? The idea that we somehow know for sure that it meant only you can't stop or undo an impeachment seems wrong to us. Uh, And then when you look at other sources like James Madison, he was clearly concerned about um, an impeached president pardoning. And in a debate in the Virginia ratifying convention, he says some things that are really remarkable about presidents being suspended and being suspended in their powers, including in their impeachment powers. Uh, And, um, you know, we're not sure that what he's about, we give some different ideas, but we say uh, it is enough to make you question the traditional view. Now, our main argument is given the historical uncertainty, we don't think we can prove it either way. Let's think about the broad values and structures of the American Constitution. It's all about a president not violating the law not helping himself, taking an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, as I've written a book about and we've often discussed, taking care that the laws are faithfully uh, executed, uh, faithfully executing the office. It's all about using powers in a way that are for others, that are benign, not malicious and for self-aggrandization. So when you take the uncertainty of the history and the history that supports our side, and you take the values of the Constitution as a whole, our point is no way can you use a pardon in order to pardon a co-conspirator. It's all about not 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 making that possible. And you mentioned the, the August 25th, 1787. Um, and, and, and right before that, uh, and you also cite um, 
Edmund Randolph, who was our first attorney mm-hmm. general. And and you quote him and when he says the, the, the prerogative of the pardon in these cases was too great a trust. The president may himself be guilty. The traitors may be his own instruments. And that sort of seems to me be, to get it actually at the crux of your concern in this in this case. Uh, yes, Edmund R- Randolph, governor from um, uh, Virginia, delegate from Virginia. When you look at that language, it's like, wow, this really this guy was thinking about what we're thinking about now. He brought that up after um, August 25th. He brought it up in September. But we take that as evidence that this was an ongoing concern from the beginning uh, throughout the convention. And then when you look at the ratifying conventions, another Virginia delegate, George Mason, is constantly bringing this example up. What if the president tried to pardon a co-conspirator? Can you stop that? Madison thought you could. Randolph wouldn't sign at the convention. He was worried about this and other things enough to not sign. He does sign for a variety of reasons uh, at the Virginia convention. He, he votes to ratify. Uh, so, yeah, they cared about this. Definitely. They imagined exactly this kind of case and debated and discussed it. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Brown, political science professor and longtime friend of the public morality whose recent piece in The Atlantic magazine co-authored by University of Texas political science professor Jeffrey Tulis entitled uh, The Traditional Interpretation of the Pardon Power is Wrong, and where I'm speaking none other than uh, Professor Corey Brettschneider. Professor Corey Brettschneider, how is it, especially given the emphasis placed on textualism, that this modern interpretation that you're concerned about uh, that you said is wrong has fallen largely below the radar in this particular case. Um, I'm sorry. Can you just ask it one more time? Sure. I mean, how is it that, given the emphasis uh, in the debate placed on textualism, that this right. mo- modern interpretation that you cite is wrong um, has fallen largely below the radar? I mean, I'm guess I'm saying that very few people beyond Byron Williams and Corey Brechner today yeah. are talking about this issue. Well, Jeffrey Tullis. Jeffrey Tullis, yes. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll, I'm going to get to that in a second. Uh, there is this understanding going back to story. I mean, when you have, you know, think of the game of telephone, right? When you start off and you say, uh, hey, I think this is probably the case. And then over time, courts and scholars have said, oh, yeah, this is the case. And they probably got dropped. And I think people just stopped looking at the history and stopped really examining it. Now, it's not that they don't have a plausible story either. And so when you combine the fact that story said it with a plausible story, so to speak, um, uh, you get a combination, which often happens, I think, in these debates where the text is thought to mean one thing. So I had a much earlier piece in um, uh, Politico and, you know, it, it met with some shock from a lot of people like what? It means this other thing. And that's why we really had to write a second piece to go into the history and show no, the thing that everybody thinks, the traditional view uh, just isn't based in the history. Now, story, as I said, had less access to information that we now have, including the notes. And, you know, I just think people haven't looked at it carefully. It's not that nobody noticed um, the great journalist I.F. Stone during the uh, Nixon mm-hmm. impeachment, the Ford impeachment of Nixon, made a very similar argument to us. Uh, it got, you know, dismissed by a lot of lawyers. So now this time, you know, rather than a journalist doing it, it's scholars We're having people look at it. And um, I'll tell you, the pardon itself is not going on challenge. There is, um, this is breaking news to some degree, 
uh, a group called Free Speech for People that's representing a colleague of mine at Fordham Law School, Jed Sugarman and Ethan Lieb, challenging the pardon and asking uh, to uh, the judge to invite amicus briefs. Now, um, she's not invited amicus briefs yet, but she's invited briefing on why she should ask for amicus briefs. So there is, it is possible that this isn't just going to be a theoretical argument. If she invites general briefing, we will absolutely also, in addition to them, submit a separate brief uh, defending our view. They, they also argue that the pardon is limited uh, based on, a, on an aspect that we agree with, the take care clause. Um, but they don't make our our full argument that that we make in the in the Atlantic piece. Hmm. Now, so this is real. <laughs> well, one could argue that um, President Trump had already laid the foundation for the Roger Stone pardon with his well, back in 2017, I believe it was. Uh, he pardoned uh, Arizona's Sheriff Joe Prio, who was convicted of ignoring judges' orders by detaining suspected illegal immigrants. In 2018, he pardoned Scooter Libby who basically outed uh, CIA operative Valerie Plame. And, and then earlier this year, he commuted the sentence of the of, uh, former Illinois Governor Rob Bogoyevich, who f- was yeah. convicted on a array of charges, not the least of which um, he was going to sell President Obama's Senate seat to the highest bidder. So I guess my question, given this history, beyond one's personal objection in the manner that the president is using the pardon and commutation power, yeah. How is this nothing more than, than business as usual? I mean, President Trump is not the first to offer pardons to someone who we might deem yeah. unsavory. That's a great question, and it allows me to sort of strengthen our view. I mean, um, you know, there are pardons that are objectionable, but that we're not certainly not claiming under our theory would be uh, invalid or unconstitutional. And all of the ones that you just mentioned, Scooter Libby, um, the, you know, Arpaio, go through them. Uh, there are reasons to object to them, but but it's not it's not what we're talking about here. We're really talking about something that concerns the center of democracy. The impeachment power of the Congress is the way to um, basically protect against an abusive president. And if the president is using the pardon power to undermine that, you know, there's got to be a limit. It's common sense. It's the idea. The structure of the Constitution shouldn't allow its fundamental mechanisms to be abused. The other, I guess, the other, the other piece here is is um, st- sort of staying with the history of the of, of the controversial pardon, if you will. That um, they're usually done at the eleventh hour. Um, I'm thinking about right. um, Bill Clinton pardoned uh, what financier uh, Mark Rich. Yeah, um, but it's unprecedented that such actions are conducted um, as a sitting president, and, and we've never had a president who's conducted pardons at this time who's facing re-election, who himself has been impeached. So how does this play in your analysis? Um, One parallel might be, you know, could Clinton do the pardons that he did after the impeachment? Could, um, uh, could, um, uh, if you go all the way back, we'd have to look at Andrew Johnson, uh, which I haven't done. But, you know, Clinton did pardon um, uh, in cases connected to Whitewater. And I am starting to look into them because one thing that we've heard from a lot of people is, oh, your argument would apply there, too. On the one hand, I don't you know, he was clear to the charges in Whitewater. So the impeachment charges don't mention Whitewater uh, in the Clinton case. And that's one difference. But the impeachment investigation did look into it. So a lot of it will hinge on how broadly or narrowly you want to talk. We do talk about directly related to the impeachment charges. So I think that might rule out the uh, Clinton pardons. But I, I'm open to the 
argument that no, it's really about the investigation, and so those pardons were also invalid under our theory. And I just, you know, it's one of those hard cases that I have to, we have to, Jeff Toulis and I have to think much more about. But but Ken Starr did have wide latitude because of Whitewater, to, which eventually led us I, to Monica yeah. Lewinsky. Correct. Yeah. And that that is an argument that, you know, it was certainly part of the Starr investigation. I think it was part of the congressional inquiry at one point. And maybe that's an argument that, you know, we should have a broad the, you know, how do you weigh the danger? The danger to me isn't in limiting the president's pardon power too much. The danger is in allowing these co-conspirator pardons. Uh, so if somebody wants to argue within our theory, don't define it just in terms of the charges. Define it more broadly as being about the investigation. That's certainly something that I'm very interested in hearing more about. Mm. And one of them hearing you say that in real time, um, President Trump is taking the pardon and commutation power, transforming it essentially into a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. And, and if that's right. true, talk about the dangers that lie ahead uh, for the republic, if, this, if that's an accurate assessment. Yeah. Did you, did you, you, we referenced the Randolph quote, or did we read it? I read part of it. You can read part it. Part of it. Yeah. Um, let, let's read it. And, you know, again, this comes after just want to be clear and when it happens it happens in a in a in a debate about a much more uh, broad limit on the pardon power the 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 there was a proposal to li- limit the president's ability to to pardon treason period that's different from what we're talking about it happens later but listen to what he says we take this to be a general concern not just of Randolph but of um, the convention generally <laughs> and um, certainly plays a big role in the anti-federalist debates. He says, the prerogative of pardon in these cases was too great a trust. The president himself may be guilty. The traitors may be his own instruments. Wow, that's what we're talking about. The president colluding with a co-conspirator and using the pardon power to get them off in order to get himself off. It's very close to the idea of a self-pardon, using the pardon to pardon your own crimes. Nixon's Office of Legal Counsel said you couldn't self-pardon uh, but we're saying maybe there's something to the idea that the principle behind, not that there's something, there is something to the idea that the principle behind banning self-pardons also applies here, too. This is not technically a self-pardon, but it's awfully close, the pardoning of a co-conspirator. Uh, the Republic has, in my view, has operated uh, in, on a collective assumption that those in power fundamentally want the system to work. Mm. But what do we do when there's an aberration? Um, do we say, oh, well, um, not a bad percentage over 233 years in existence? Or, mm. or do we seek to codify what was once assumed to be an institutional norm? How, 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 would you, how should we handle that going forward in your view? Yeah, I, I think, you know, my understanding is Congress is considering limiting the pardon power. And, you know, part of what we're doing is to support the idea that that's constitutional the president will argue, he'll veto the bill, I'm sure. And, you know, one argument that you'll hear from some scholars is you can't limit the pardon power because it's constitutionally granted in this extreme way. And certainly we don't think that. I would say that codifying the view that Jeff Toulis and I give would be an essential way forward. Uh, but we think more than that, you know, that Judge Jackson right now, she does invite briefing as she's evidently considering, uh, should say right now, even without a statute, even without codification, the Constitution prohibits this pardon, you know, and look, how do, how do you know? Look at what the meaning, the real meaning of accepting cases of impeachment is, not the, the usual meaning. 
the, the you know since our since our founding, as you well know, I mean, the one thing we didn't want uh, Alexander Hamilton notwithstanding is we didn't want a monarch, and, right? And since its inception, um, there hasn't been a, a monarch, but but at the same time, we see. Uh, for lack of a better word, my words, not yours, authoritarian behavior uh, that one could attribute to this president that has not received a great deal of pushback. How, how, how yeah. do you explain that? Yeah, I'll endorse your words with the strongest way that I can. <laughs> I mean, let's make them both our words. <laughs> they, uh, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, that's part of what I'm trying to do here with Jeff. And I, I did a... Um, interview with MSNBC when it came out where I was really, uh, I got a little emotional and emphatic about this point that crimes are happening in broad daylight, violations of the constitution. And part of it is that the citizenry has forgotten what these things mean. And, you know, I am trying to convince lawyers and if you see me on Twitter or you see me, um, you know, arguing, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing in a way simultaneously to consider, to, to convince lawyers. Uh, and, you know, frankly, I think the fact that I'm teaming up with one of the premier scholars on the founding and on the presidency, um, uh, you know, should make people listen to us, that we're not given the usual history that you've heard again and again from Joseph's story on forward. We're giving the actual, really deeply understood version of what happened at the convention and the papers and the meaning of the structure of the Constitution and its values. Uh, but I also equally care about telling citizens about this and working with them because the constitution rests on our ability as citizens to know when wrongdoing has happened. So when you say to me and to your listeners, uh, this is a president who's really, you know, attacking the foundation of the constitution of its, of our Republic and has a sort of a authoritarian ambition that doesn't belong in our tradition. Uh, and I, when I say our tradition, I mean, in the best way understood, uh, you know, that that means something to, to me and I want it to mean something to all of us. And frankly, I love doing your show. I love collaborating with you because I know that, that in your book on the Declaration and in every time you do your show and columns, that's what you're trying to do, too. Hmm. Well, 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 to that, I, I guess um, I, I'm wondering on, just on a personal note, I mean, just the. The frustration that I'm hearing from you now, but just just overall, yeah. it, it it it's it's almost. I'm wondering if you feel this way too. It's almost as if we've all taken a Machiavellian oath, and that is, and if that whereby the means justify the end. So if it's my person doing it, it's not right. it's not unconstitutional. But if it's your person doing it, then it is unconstitutional, and he sh he or she should be beheaded. And I'm hearing you say it. That doesn't matter. That should be irrelevant. That's right. You know, we try to say that in the piece that this is about the presidency going forward, not just about this president. And, you know, I'm willing to criticize past behavior of presidents in my own party. And that includes Bill Clinton, who I have completely, um, you know, I was at his nomination at the convention at age 18. I was lucky enough to have a nosebleed ticket. And uh, I was a huge fan of his and, uh, you know, thought that at the time as a kid that impeachment was an unfair you know, partisan witch hunt, but I don't think that anymore. I'll tell you. I'm looking at at um, at it in retrospect, and uh, it's not just Clinton. It's in general. We've got to really think about um, the rule of law here, and not just about um, uh, 
Uh, and, you know, I'll criticize Obama as well as I do in The Oath in the Office, a guide to the Constitution for future presidents. What I say about Obama is, uh, you know, he abused the war power. And um, issues like uh, drone attacks also I'm really uncomfortable with, to say the least. I think they were um, violations of the Constitution spirit, if not the letter of the law. And um, we've got to really pledge that, uh, you and I, to um, in what will hopefully be a Biden presidency to make these issues still front and center. And people are right when they say, um, you know, you can't just do it in regard to Trump. Absolutely. I agree with that. Um, finally, does the, does the pardon, President Trump's pardon, uh, Roger Stone, mean that he is essentially a free man? It's not over. You know, he's been granted the reduction in the sentence by the president of the United States. The usual view is it's not reviewable. But we're at a critical moment right now. Judge Jackson has a brief. Uh, this isn't mine. It's, again, this group, uh, Free Speech for People. And what they're saying is, no, you can't do this. This is an unconstitutional pardon. And you need to invite constitutional law scholars to opine on it. And now they have two specific scholars, friends of mine, that they're uh, representing. But, you know, if, if this happens, if we move forward, certainly Jeff and I will submit an independent brief. And we're not going to allow them to stand by themselves saying this. Uh, you know, they're right. Uh, this is limited. We have different approaches. I know their argument well. I respect it a great deal. Um, but, you know, there are two angles on why the pardon is is unconstitutional so far. And, and we really hope to bring that out. And so in all likelihood, I mean, I don't want to mislead people or give them false hope. He he is going to be have his sentence commuted and that'll be the end of it. Uh, but what is the Constitution requires it requires something else. And what is this judge going to do? There is now, I mean, as of a few hours ago, uh, a possibility she is going to do something about this. Hmm. Corey Brechtschneider, friend uh, to the public morality and um, one of our leading thinkers on these on these critical issues on this thing I call the public morality. I mean, you are yes. one, one of the leaders to, to, to try to hold it together. You are, are increasingly... Uh, like the little boy holding his finger in the dike and keeping us, <laughs> keeping us all from drowning. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much, sir. Always a pleasure to speak to you, and really thank you for what you're doing every week. I will end today's broadcast with some closing remarks. On July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, its last surviving signers, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, died. On June 17, 2020, two cornerstones of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, Representative John Lewis and Reverend C.T. Vivian, also died on the same day. Though neither Lewis nor Vivian are lionized in America's historical pantheon, like that of Adams and Jefferson, but their valiant efforts nevertheless move the nation closer to its stated commitments. Lewis was the last surviving speaker at the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. He was part of the so-called Big Six, the prominent civil rights leaders, including the Reverend Martin Luther King, instrumental in organizing the march. Vivian was also influential in the movement. He worked closely with Dr. King and was part of the executive staff of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. King called Vivian the greatest preacher he ever heard. Though 2020 will long be remembered for its impact of COVID-19, it has also exacted a toll on several of the civil rights community's lions in the winter. 
In addition to Lewis and Vivian, Reverend Joseph Lowry also died earlier this year. They, along with many others still with us, audaciously took seriously the words crafted in Philadelphia and eventually signed at Independence Hall. Like Adams and Jefferson, Lewis and Vivian take their final flight together. And like the 56 delegates who signed the Declaration in 1776, Lewis and Vivian are part of an illustrious American genealogy that will be remembered for mutually pledging their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor in pursuit of a more perfect union. I want to thank today's guest, Professor Corey Brechneider. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And in the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams.